Hey, Ashley here. <laughs> Hi, this is Kendra, and welcome to Art Gab. Art Gab. <laughs> panel discussion um uh, talking about beauty it was really it was awesome i, I learned a lot and um good, good conversation made people laugh it was fun it was fun nice yeah and how was your weekend good good i was gonna say i went to um it's called boyerism mm-hmm. up here in portland and it was at the bossa nova mm-hmm. i think it's bossa nova uh, theater and it's just like a burlesque show when they do it every other month it's pretty fun and they have traveling artists perform and it's yeah it's my third time going boys recommended um yeah uh i also did another makeup look if you go on my instagram you can see i've been doing the neon theme lately uh and then my radio show mm-hmm. that I did in Salem and then so like announcement wise um, this Friday the 19th at about 9.30 I will be on uh, Capital City Theater's uh, comedy show mm-hmm. I, I don't really know what I'm going to be doing but probably get it roasted I guess but that will be happening and that's in Salem at the Capital City Theater. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Anyway, should we get started? Sure. We should probably do a shout out to Christopher. Oh yeah. Our third member of this Art Gab team. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's been kind of doing the recording end of it. Yeah. Editing. But he got our first recording up on um, stumptowncreative.com. Mm-hmm. Kind of going from there, but he's been doing a lot of that. So. Yeah, he's amazing. He's he's um, great musician. He has our music as well, and great at um, editing and publishing. And he anything to do with computers, he's he's on it. Um, Thank goodness, because I wouldn't be able to figure it out. Oh, I know, right? He's <laughs> tried to explain it to me before. It's just yeah. Uh, you're like, so you're saying you're going to do it, right? Because <laughs> He's like, you could go here, you could go here, you could do this. And I'm like, so I'm going to email you everything, right? So you're telling me you're going to do it. I'm just going to give it to you and you could put it on yourself. Nice. Um, okay, cool. Yeah, so um, I'll go. I could go first. Sure. Yeah. Um, I wish I had announcements. I don't really. I know. Like, uh, I'm trying to think of what's coming up in the art world. It's kind of that weird in between spring, summer, end of the middle of the month tax season right oh use your tax rebates refunds to go buy art there that's my a... announcement is that you're going to go buy some artwork exactly put it towards that i wrote down da vinci so i guess today would be his birthday okay uh 1452 seth rogan is 36 today <laughs> um it's tax day today but i think it's actually in like two more days because of the weekend. You're like, I'm baking on that. I'm going to pretend like it's two days. <laughs> uh, like, I hope my taxes are done. This doesn't really have anything to do with art. The, in 1912, the Titanic sank today. 
Because tax day has something to do with art. <laughs> These are just things that happen today, okay? Um, and then this, I, I wrote this person down. I don't know if it's their birthday. Or... Arshil Gorky. Yeah, I think it was his birthday. Yeah. So, yeah. Painter. Painter. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Uh, next week, I'll try to have a, maybe more art-themed things. <laughs> oh, we got our dogs in here. We yeah. tried to keep them out, but they came back in. Okay, so we chose artists having to do with abstract expressionism because it's um, something we both wanted to learn a little bit more about. Um, so what is abstract expressionism? Um, it's basically described as new forms of abstract art developed by American painters such as Jackson Pollock, Mark Rothko, William de Kooning, um, all in the 1940s and 50s. Um, it's characterized by gestural brushstrokes, or mark making and the impression of spontaneity. Um, so think about artwork that doesn't really uh, depict anything. It might represent something, but it doesn't depict it. So there's no illusion of space or illusion of um, a person or something. Um, so that's kind of the idea behind abstract expressionism. Again, you think of like this, the poured paintings the dripped paintings of Jackson Pollock or the poured paintings of Helen Frankenthaler or the field kind of paintings of Mark Rothko or the, the energetic kind of brushstrokes of William de Kooning. Um, but I chose Joan Mitchell. Um, so she was wonderful. Um, and a lot of what I read about her uh, uh, was all over the internet, of course, Wikipedia. But um, uh, there's a new book called Joan Mitchell, Lady Painter by Patricia Albers, which is really interesting. Um, and she did a talk regarding her work at the Elizabeth Sackler Center a few years back, and, and it was really fascinating. And then um, Dave Hickey just released a book called 25 Women, um, Essays on Their Art. And so some of this is from that as well. So this is a quote by Dave Hickey. Um, you couldn't really like Joan Mitchell, of course, because she was so noisy and aggressive. But I liked her anyways. I just liked her too. She was a tough babe. And I think she was the best painter of her generation. Um, so I love that quote because it, it, it says a lot, right? Like guys were like, she's a tough dude or tough, tough chick, right? She's, I like her too. Um, and, uh, kind of woven a little bit of sexism woven in there too mm -hmm. um so it's kind of stuff that she faced a lot um uh, so a little bit of history about her uh she was born in 1925 uh in chicago um her mother marion stobel mitchell mitchell was the daughter of charles louise stobel a prominent steel engineer who had designed structural elements for bridges all over um the chicago area um she was a so her mom was a published lyric poet and co-editor of Poetry Magazine with Henriet, Harriet Moore. Uh, together, Mitchell and Moore published works, um, some for the first time in America, um, works by um, Ezra Pound and T.S. Eliot, among others. Um, so it was through this that Mitchell was introduced to poetry and literature as a, as a kid, um, and she met um, a lot of amazing writers, including Dylan Thomas. Um, so Joan Mitchell's father was James Herbert Mitchell. Um, he was a doctor. He, um, kind of a go-getter. He put himself through school by himself. Um, 
and eventually became the president of the American Dermatology Association. Um, when she was a kid, her dad would take her out, her and her sister Sally, to sketch. Um, he was a kind of an amateur painter, so he kind of like kind of shared that with his daughters. Um, he also put a ton of pressure on her to compete. Um, and according to historian Patricia Albers, he required her at the age of 12 to choose her life's purpose. Um, so she loved writing. She loved poetry, like her mom. But she um, chose painting to pursue. So at the age of 12, she was like, I'm going to be a painter. Um, she took week, you know, like you do. You just... I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going to do. You didn't decide at age 12 what you wanted to do? No. <laughs> still figuring that out. <laughs> um, uh, so she took weekend art classes, and her favorite artists were Van Gogh and um, Kokoschka. Kokoschka. I cannot say that. Kokoschka. Kokoschka. Sounds, like, <laughs> sounds like I'm calling Oscar Kokoschka, so expressionist painter. Um, so Joan's father... Uh, <laughs> wanted a boy um, his, and, and, re, and reminded her of that often. <laughs> um, Girl, uh, thanks. Apparently like... he named her John in the hospital, but then he found out she was a girl, so he just scratched out the H and turned it to an A. She's like, Dad. <laughs> thanks, Dad. Um, uh, this would lead her to seek psychiatric help uh, later in life. <laughs> you know. Um, another thing that would sh uh, help shape her mind was her synesthesia. Do you know what synesthesia is? Wow, that was a really blurry sentence. Do you know what synesthesia is? Do you know what that is? No. Oh, it's awesome. Um, so Tell me more. I mean, maybe if you don't, maybe if you have it, it's not so awesome, but it sounds really cool. Basically, it's the idea, synesthesia is a perceptual phenomenon in which stimulation of one sensory or cognitive pathway leads to automatic involuntary experiences in a second sensory or cognitive pathway. So in other words, you... Um, you taste sounds, for instance, or she would, um, she would see colors with sounds or associate colors with certain emotions. Like it wasn't just like a, um, an analogy or a metaphor. It was like she literally saw, like the letter A was green. Or is that oh, interesting? Interesting, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, some people they get other senses kind of switched, and it's really it's interesting. And they really didn't know much about it until much later. So when she was a little kid, she was kind of thought, like, treated, like, kind of strange. Huh. Um, and so that really helped shape her mind, but also her um, photographic memory. So she, um, she, like, had serious photographic memory. And um, what's kind of neat is that she had a tiny studio. I'll talk about this in a minute, but in Paris. And she would do these massive paintings, like 20 feet long, right? And... So how does she do it? Well, she would work on, there would be multiple panels. So she would have like three panels and she'd work on a few of them and then she'd put them aside and then she'd paint the next part of it from her, attaching it to a, another part from her memory. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So it was pretty, pretty fascinating. <laughs> so, her, so she used both those things, so her synesthesia and her photographic memory in her work. But I wanted to note that um, it, uh, that, that these were her talents as a painter would not just. Uh, I just wanted to note. <laughs> you okay with it? Yeah. Um, Don't mind me. <laughs> I just wanted to note that these gifts were not like why she was such a good painter. You know what I mean? Like she used them, but she also had a lot of training. She also like used her tools 
I made her like artwork unique though. Yeah. In totally. a way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so in high school she was the athlete. Did you know she was a figure skater? That's pretty cool, right? She's a competitive nice. just, Yeah. Just yeah. like mom. Well, no, I guess mom was a speed skater. No, totally different. Well she did partner mind. skating, but that was on like roller skates, not like ice skates. Yeah. Yeah. Totally different, Kendra. Totally different. <laughs> Start over. No. Um, edit so, that out. No, don't edit. <laughs> um, from 1942 to 1944, she attended Smith College as an English major. And then from 1944 to 1946, she gets her BFA at the School of Art, the Art Institute of Chicago. Um, so in 1948, uh, so that's pretty cool, right? Yeah. Great school. Um, Surrounded by masterpieces, right? But I'm interested about why she got it in English when she was decided at a young age she wanted to be a painter. Oh, I know, right? Uh, So she she didn't. She didn't finish it. She studied art instead. I mean, she started Uh, out as an English major. Gotcha. Yeah. Kind of like me, right? Like, I was like, I want to be a graphic designer. But then I kept painting. And so, like, I better just focus on my painting. Yeah. Um, so in 1948, uh, she travels on fellowship to France. Um, she lives in La Lavandue in Provence, where she paints mainly expressionist landscapes evolving toward abstraction. So, um, she, in, in the next year, she marries Barney Rossett, whom she met in school and traveled with in France. Um, he was a publisher, uh, I think it was Duck. Dove Press? Oh, I'm going to totally get that wrong. Anyway, uh, so, and then shortly after that, uh, in the early 50s, they moved back to New York, and uh, Mitchell sees the work of de Kooning. His work opens her eyes to the possibilities of abstraction. Um, have you ever seen his work? It's just wild. Like, the brush strokes are kind of fast and aggressive, um, lots of color, uh, yeah, so she sees his work and was like, oh, yeah, so there's, so, you know, I could go that far away from figuration. <laughs> um, in the early 50s, she spent time uh, with, at the 8th Street uh, Club, which was a regular meeting place of modern artists working in and around 10th Street in New York. She also spent a lot of time at the Cedar Tavern, a place where many prominent abstract expressionist painters and beat writers and poets hung out. Um, and... Uh, so, uh, sidebar, I heard a story about her there. <laughs> I don't know if this is, this could be edited out if it's not appropriate. But, uh, you know, she's surrounded by all these guy painters, right? And she, she has some guy, girlfriend painters too. But um, she was at this bar once. And this kind of epitomizes, like, her strength, her, like, tenacity, and her, her like, res- resilience against sexism, right? So she's at this bar, she's drinking with her buddies, and behind her comes this older painter guy, and apparently uh, uh, he grabs her boob, just like cups her <laughs> boob. And like, I guess she apparently just like, without even thinking, she just grabs his balls. <laughs> so I kind of love that. Um, <laughs> it's like so perfect. She doesn't even think about it, she just does it. It's like the, you know, get politeness kind of thing. Fuck politeness, right? Um, Anyway, so she's so she's making a name for herself. She's getting some paintings, some awesome paintings done. She's showing with the Ninth Street, um, or she showed with a bunch of amazing painters um, at the Ninth Street show. Um, her work is influenced by poetry and places. 
that she experienced, as well as her poodle, George, um, the big black poodle, George. Did you hear that? Yeah. Edie's Edie like, yep, that's my, that's like me, just like me. Um, and then her Sky Terrier, Birdie. <laughs> so her paintings, Sky and George, or sorry, Sky, are examples of this, but her, her painting, George went swimming at Barnes Hole but got too cold, is also an example of that. So that's this painting right here, Ashley. Um, nice. Mm -hmm. It's black and white in this picture, but you can imagine. I could pull it up on my computer here, but uh, lots of blues um, on a white field. So she tended to paint on a white field and then do these quick brush strokes on top of it. Um, there you go. And all the pictures and stuff are on our website too. So um, all, there's all sorts of bonus materials is there as well if you guys want to go on there. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. He's going to be. Oh. I know, right? So here's that painting. Very cool. Yeah. So even though you don't see a dog in these paintings, you still like, they're still influenced by her experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, she wants to kind of get to the, po she saw her work as kind of like po visual poetry in a way, right? Um, she associated certain colors with emotions and wove those into her work. Um, she, at that time in the 50s, she exhibits with many other abstract expressionists, um, such as the famous Ninth Street show in an abandoned storefront on, on uh, East Ninth Street. Um, she and Barney divorced in 1952, but remained close friends their whole lives. Um, in 1955, uh, Joan met uh, Jean-Paul Riopel, a um, Montreal-born painter. He had, a name, he had made a name for himself in the Parisian abstract painting movement. Mitchell maintained a, maintained a complicated relationship with Riopel for almost 25 years. Um, so starting in 1955, like she would spend you know, part of her life in Paris, part of her life in, in New York, kind of going back and forth. Um, and then as far as her... Um, her guy friend, uh, Rio Pell, um, they like lived in separate homes, but they would drink and hang out together. So it was kind of like they bought, they bought neighboring houses near Paris and <laughs> hung out. Um, but then they like also had such fiery uh, personalities that they knew that they didn't want to live together. Um, Mitchell was rewarded with considerable degree of commercial success and respect from the art world, despite overt sexism. So I, I mentioned the Cedar Tavern incident, but she also uh, mentioned that there were there were points in her life where she would get kind of these really sexist rejections. I guess there was one point where a guy said, you know, oh, if you were only a man and dead and, and French, you would you'd be making it basically. And it's like, oh, thanks. Hmm. I'm not I'm not any of those things, but thank you. <laughs> cool, um, dude. Thanks. thanks. Bye. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> later. Um, do, 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 do. Where was I? Oh, yeah. Um, she always spoke her mind and she had a temper. There are lots of stories of like epic fights with her and her, her guy. Um, and, uh, she, oh, I wrote, she wrote, she refused the Whitney. Okay. So in the 70s, Whitney, uh, Whitney Museum of Art in New York uh, mm -hmm. came to her and was like, hey, we want to do a show of your work. And she refused them because she thought that they were offering it as, um, a, as a way to. Uh, they, she felt like they were using her. 
um, to like make they have ulterior motives. Yeah, yeah, using her to make themselves look all woke, basically. You know, Wait, woke, woke. I know woke. That woke. was not a term back then. Okay, they were. She felt like they were using her to to make themselves look all feminist, and she yeah. didn't like that. So, so she initially rejected the show, and then and then her um, dealer kind of eventually talked her into it. Um. So that background noise is Edie scratching her face. Stop it, Edie. Jeez, just stop. <laughs> um, listen to my listen to my words, Edie. Just listen. Um, so so she was kind of she was a strong-willed person. Definitely spoke her mind. Didn't just take any show without thinking about it first. Um, she had her legacy in mind. She also didn't associate associate herself with the feminists. Um, she's thought. <laughs> So Patricia Albers, in her biography, she mentions that basically Joan Mitchell thought that um, feminist artists of the 60s and 70s were whiny and hid, and hid behind the fact that they couldn't make art. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of funny. Um, so, so kind of her, her take on, on it was that she's just going to make good artwork, you know, not, not linger in the fact that she's a woman or anything, or not make artwork about being a woman. Um, at the same time, Joan Mitchell was very kind. She made um, time to mentor young female artists and buy their work. Um, and, and later, well, I'll get to that later, but here's a few more examples of her work, actually. Uh, oh yeah. Okay. So city landscape here. I love that. Again, it has the white or off white background and she's, she has these energetic marks kind of uh, culminating in the center of the canvas, big red and maroon, blacks. Um, definitely has the energy of the landscape. Um, this painting down here is uh, called Hemlock from 1956. Um, and it's from the poem Domination of Black by Wallace Stevens. So um, I, fa I found a description of this painting I, I kind of liked. Um, Mitchell's paintings are striking in their sheer physicality. She used bold and active strokes of paint on large canvases. In Hemlock, her use of cool whites interplays with the horizontal lines of green and black and gives a sense of an evergreen in the winter. Um, and then this painting here is called No Birds. So this was done kind of later in her life, 1987, 88. Um, and got some black kind of marks skipping along the top surface of these two panels here. Um, and then on the bottom, there's this gathering of, of orange and, and pink marks. Um, and apparently she was thinking about Van Gogh's uh, later paintings um, and, and think, and, and I think it was his, I think it was some of his um, sunflower paintings. And, she really responded to the quiet emptiness, and she saw them as kind of a suicide note uh, from Van Gogh. Um, and so this painting that she did, No Birds, is kind of uh, referencing that. I also wanted to note that she did these she did these big horizontal paintings, like I said, 20 feet wide or so, um, big, bold, kind of in-your-face things. Um, but she would, she would make them by putting a bunch of vertical panels together. And the reason she did this is she liked how... The, the rectangle, the strong, bold uh, 
geometric shape interacted with her painterly handmade marks. And she also liked how the vertical stripes in that were made by the panels um, kind of rejected the large horizontal rectangle of the painting itself. So she, she purposely did um, made her panels that way. And then the final painting I wanted to talk, or the fi final things I wanted to say was um, in the 1980s, uh, she battled jaw cancer, hip dysplasia, and osteoarthritis. She quit smoking but kept drinking. Um, and in this painting here um, from 1990 called the S In Sunflowers, um, she chose to paint the flowers in a state of decay, wanting the work to convey the feeling of a dying sunflower. Um, so later in life, she kind of, she did a lot more with sunflowers, revisiting them. Um, and soon after that painting, um, beautiful bright colored sunflowers, right? All slightly decaying, um, skipping along two panels here with a white background. Um, so soon after that, about a year later on October 30th, uh, 1992, she died of lung cancer. Um, and I kind of, what I wanted to also kind of end on here was that, um, she, she made a ton of artwork in her life. She did a ton of amazing shows, but I think what she'll really be remembered for was her generosity, um, both in her lifetime and also after her death. Um, she, for, uh, they, uh, with the formation of the Joan Mitchell Foundation. Um, which call uh, sorry, which supports and recognizes individual artists. Um, in addition, the foundation mission includes the promotion and preservation of Joan Mitchell's legacy, which includes her remarkable body of work, her papers, including correspondence and photographs, and other archival materials related to her work. So that's Joan Mitchell. Nice. Yeah. Very cool. So this week. I'm going to be talking about this lady. She's kind of, uh, when you see her in pictures, she's very iconic, wearing like a scarf around her head with like big false black eyelashes and like a cigarette hanging out of her mouth. Just very, very cool lady. Audrey Hepburn? <laughs> very fashionable lady. Um, okay, so her name is Louise Nevelson. Mm -hmm. She was born September 23rd, 1899. And um, I'm probably going to say this very incorrectly, but um, uh, Polta, Poltava Governorate of, Rus of the Russian Empire. So basically, it's the present day, it's Ukraine. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> she was actually born Leah Berlowski. Um, she was, her parents are Min Sadie or Minna. And Isaac, um, her her dad was a contractor and lumber merchant. In 1905, they they moved the whole family to the United States um, in Rockland, Maine, is where they ended up. Uh, her dad worked as a a woodcutter before opening a junkyard. His work as a lumberjack made wood a consistent presence in the family household. Um, later, you'll notice that's a big material in her artwork so it's kind of like her dad did that for a living and kind of it almost like it stuck with her because that's her main her main uh 
source of what she makes her art out of. Um, I think it's funny here. Um, it says her mother wore flamboyant outfits with heavy makeup. And Nevelson uh, described her mother's dressing up as an art. Um, her pride in her job. Also describing her as someone who should have lived in a palace. So I think it's kind of sweet. Like, see pictures of her later in life. Very flamboyant, big fake eyelashes and reading about her. It sounds like her mom was kind of the same way. Mm -hmm. So Nevelson's first experience of art was at the age of nine at Rockland Public Library, where she saw a plaster cast of Joan of Arc. Shortly thereafter, she decided to study art, uh, taking drawing in high school. So she started out kind of dabbling in all kinds of different art and that's where she kind of fine-tuned what she liked and didn't like in art and everything. Um, she graduated from high school in 1918 and began working as a stenographer at a local law office. There she met Charles Nevelson, and they were married in 1920 in a Jewish wedding. Um, this, you know, she kind of felt like she was satisfying her parents' um, hopes that she would marry a wealthy family. She and her new husband moved to New York City, where she began to study painting, drawing, singing, acting, and dancing. In 1922, she gave birth to her son, Myron, who went by Mike, um, and he also grew up to be a sculptor. Uh, so she continued to study art despite the disapproval of her parents-in-law. She commented that her husband's family was terribly refined. Within the circle, you could know Beethoven, but God forbid you were Beethoven. So that's kind of the atmosphere that she was around at that time. In 1924, she, uh, with her husband and her son, moved to Mount Vernon, New York. She was kind of upset with the move because it, it removed her from the city where she really loved to be. She was unwilling to become a socialite wife that he kind of expected her to be. So in 1941, she divorced her husband and she never sought financial support from him, mm -hmm. even though he was really well off. Um, so in the 1930s, so like starting in 1929, she studied art full time under Kenneth Hayes Miller in Kimon Nicolaitis at the Art Students League. In 1931, she went to Europe paying for her trip by selling a diamond bracelet that her ex-husband had given her. While in Europe, she studied with Hans Hoffman before visiting Italy and France, returning to New York in 1932. Oh, by the way, Louise, um, Joan Mitchell tried to study with Hans Hoffman. Oh, did she? And she, I guess, went to a class and she was like, I don't know what you're saying. I'm going to leave. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> so it's interesting you mentioned him. Nice little tie in there. Yeah. Like, uh, yeah, no. <laughs> okay. So yeah, uh, Hans Hoffman, before visiting, so she studied with him before visiting Italy and France, returning to New York in 1932. She once again studied under Hoffman, who was serving as a guest instructor at the Art Students League. This is kind of an interesting little fact. She met Diego Rivera in 1933 and worked as his assistant on his mural entitled Man at the Crossroads at Rockefeller Plaza. Diego Rivera was married to Frida Callow, which mm -hmm. Nevelson really admired. In 1935, she taught mural painting at the Madison Square Boys and Girls Club in Brooklyn as part of the Works Progress Administration, or WPA. 
She worked for the WPA in the easel painting and sculpture divisions until 1939. In 1936, she won her first sculpture competition at the ACA Galleries in New York. So like around the 1940s, her work at this time explored both figurative, abstract, um, inspired by cubism. Um, at the beginning of this, you kind of mentioned abstract expressionism. Abstract expressionism. Expressionism, yeah, sorry. So that was a lot of her artwork was that in that category, but she also was inspired by cubism. Mm-hmm. and the explorative and experimental influences of surrealism. Uh, the decade pr- provided Nevelson with the materials, movements, and self-created experiments that would mold her signature modernist style in the 1950s. So earlier on in the 1930s and 40s, she's kind of still getting her niche and what's going to make her artwork unique. Um, so during the 1950s, Nelson exhibited her work as often as possible, yet despite awards and growing popularity with art critics, she continued to struggle financially. To make ends meet, she began teaching sculpture classes and adult education programs in the Great Neck public school system. Her own work began to grow to monumental size, moving beyond the human scale size, size work that she had been creating during the early 1940s. So in the 50s, you start to see her work get bigger and kind of more fine-tuned in her style. In 1958, she joined the Martha Jackson Gallery, where she was guaranteed income and became financially secure. That year, she was photographed and featured on the cover of Life. In 1960, she had her first one-woman show in Europe at Gallery Daniel Cordier in Paris. So at that point, she's doing the wood uh, relief kind of pieces. Mm-hmm. She's starting to get more into the bigger scale collage wood pieces, and I'll kind of describe what they look like in a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, in 1962, she made her first museum sale to the Whitney Museum of Art of American Art, who purchased the Black Wall Young Shadows is the name of it. That same year, her work was selected for the 31st Venice Venice Biennale. Biennale. There you go. Yeah. And she became national president of Artist Equity Serving until 1964. So she was kind of like involved in getting into a bunch of different things in New York, especially. But in 1962, she left Martha Jackson Gallery for a brief stint at the Sydney Janice Gallery. After an unsuccessful first show in which none of her work sold, Nevelson had a falling out with the gallery owner. Around that time, she was offered a funded six-week artist fellowship at Tamarind Lithography Workshop, now Tamarind Institute in Los Angeles. And it's quoted her saying, I wouldn't ordinarily have gone. I didn't care so much about the idea of prints at the time, but I desperately needed to get out of town and all of my expenses were paid. So it was kind of like right time, right place. She kind of needed to get away from New York, kind of bad times at that point. Yeah. Um, so it was kind of meant to be kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So while there, she made 26 lithographs and became the most productive artist to complete the fellowship up until that time. Mm. So it was a good thing for her. Um, she joined Pace Gallery in the fall of 1963, where she had shows regularly until the end of her career. 
So later in, um, in the fall of 1969, she was commissioned by Princeton University to create her first, her first outdoor sculpture. After completion of her first outdoor sculptures, Nelson stated, Remember, I was in my early 70s when I came into monumental outdoor sculpture. I had been through the enclosures of wood. I had been through the shadows. I had been through the enclosures and came out into the open. Nevelson also praised her new materials like plexiglass and quarantine steel, which she described as a blessing. So she's starting to get bigger sculptures. She's starting to try new materials, you know, and she's kind of experimenting with all kinds of stuff. She embraced the idea of her works being able to withstand the climate change and the freedom in moving beyond limitation in size. So she kind of got more into the outdoor sculpture arena. In 1973, the Walker Art Center carried a major exhibit of her work, which tra traveled for two years. In 1975, she designed the Chapel of St. Peter's Lutheran Church in Midtown Manhattan. When asked about her role as a Jewish artist creating Christian-themed art, she stated that her abstract work transcended religious barriers. Here's a little tie-in that I wanted. I was excited to tell you. So Alice Neal, who you talked about last week, mm -hmm. asked Nevelson how she dressed so beautifully. <laughs> so I was kind of like, oh. She asked how she uh, dressed so beautifully. And Nevelson's reply was, fucking, dear fucking, <laughs> in reference to her sexually liberated lifestyle. So there you go. <laughs> that was her answer. Strange response. <laughs> yeah, I know. Who... I, I kind of wonder in what context that quote was. Like, there had to have been more to that. But. Yeah. So, I don't know. If you want to kind of check that, I might have. Someone might have just made that up. And I might have just. I don't know. But I just thought that was a cool tie in to Alice Neal. I like that. Yeah. Didn't they also get awarded the, like, national. Some big award, too, together, I think. Yeah, that'd be they interesting did. to look up. She was. is Reading about her, she was kind of. It's that whole thing again of like that whole art scene in New York where a lot of them kind of tie together. They know each other and kind of same era anyway. Mm -hmm. They all hung out at the same bars and stuff. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Louise Nevelson, was she the one that. Oh gosh. Okay. Email us if you guys could fix, like, if you know what I'm talking about. But was she the one that had, there was a house fire and she, um, she collected a bunch of the wood from the from the fire and then turned it into a piece. That's how she started with the the wood. Well, I did read. So I'm not sure about that exact fact, but I'm sure we could find out. But I did read that when she was when she was kind of financially not doing very well, she would collect wood and scraps in New York mm -hmm. to use as firewood. And it kind of later would be that she tied that into her artwork. Mm -hmm. But I wouldn't, that sounds like it could be a story. So right. I'd have to look that up more. <laughs> could be very well. Um, so her most notable structures are her walls. Wooden, wall-like collage driven relief consisting of multiple boxes and compartments that hold abstract shapes and found objects from chair legs to balusters. Um, she just describe these immersive sculptures as environments 
The wooden pieces were also cast off scraps, pieces found in the streets of New York, as we were just kind of talking about. So she, she called herself the original recycler, owning to her extensive use of discarded objects and credited Pablo Picasso for giving us the cube that served as her groundwork for the Cubist-style sculpture. She found strong influence in Picasso and Hoffman's Cubist ideals, describing the Cubist movement as one of the greatest awarenesses that the human mind has ever come to. She also found influence in Native American and Mayan art, dreams, the cosmos, and archetypes. So she studied as a student of Hans Hoffman, as I mentioned before. She was taught like as she was studying under him, she was taught to practice her art with a limited palette, using colors such as black and white to discipline herself. These colors would become part of her repertoire. She spray painted her walls black until 1959. Nevelson described black as the total color. That means totality. It means contains all. It contained all color. It was a neg negation of color. It was, it was an acceptance because black encompasses all colors. Black is the most aristocratic color of all, the only aristocratic color. I've seen things that were transformed into black that took on greatness. I don't want to use a lesser word. So that's kind of how she described why she used black so much in, in a lot of her, if not most of her pieces. In the 1960s, she began incorporating white and gold into her works. Nevelson said that white was the color that summoned the early mornings in, motion, in emotional promise. She, just, she described her gold phase as the Baroque phase, uh, inspired by the idea of being told as a child that America's streets would be paved with gold. The materialism and hiddenism of the color, the sun, and the moon. So black, white, and gold were her colors, and she really stuck with that, those three. A common symbol that appears in her work um, is the bride. So like I've seen in the piece entitled Bride of the Black Moon, the symbol of the, of the bride referred to Nevelson's own escape from mat matrimony in her early life in her own independence as a woman throughout the rest of her life. Her sky, her piece um, entitled Sky Cathedral, which I think is at the MoMA, um, often took, it took years to create. Um, sky Cathedral Night Wall in the collection of Columbus Museum of Art took 13 years to build in her New York City studio. On the Sky Cathedral series, Nevelson commented, this is the universe, the stars, the moon, and you and I and everyone. So, some of her legacy, I mean, there's a lot that she contributed to and added to, um, but I'll just name a few of them. Um, at the G uh, Jewish, Jewish, <laughs> I can't speak, the Jewish Museum in 2007, a sculpture garden, Louise ne and then Louise Nevelson Plaza, is located in downtown New York City, and features a collection of works by her. Um, she donated some papers in several installments from 1966 to 1979 um, that were fully digi digi digitized 
and the collection of archives of American art, the art, the Farnsworth Art Museum in Nelson's childhood home of Rockland, Maine. Um, so in Rock, so this houses the second largest collection of her works, including jewelry she designed. In two thousand, this is kind of an interesting little thing. In two thousand, the United States Post Postal Service released a series of commemorative postage stamps in her honor <laughs> commemorative commemorative <laughs> so yeah they they released some postage stamps in her honor the following year um her friend and playwright edward albi wrote the play occupant as a homage to the sculptor nice in 2005 maria nevelson is her youngest granddaughter Estra- established the Louise Nevelson Foundation, a nonprofit 501c3. Its mission is to educate the public and celebrate the life and work of her, Louise Nevelson, furthering her legacy and place in American art history. Marie Nevelson uh, lectures widely on her grandmother at museums and provides research services. So to kind of end it um, on feminism, she, she kind of said, I'm not a feminist. I'm an artist who happens to be a woman. She has been a fundamental key in the feminist art movement. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Let's back up for a second. So both both Louise Nevelson and Joan Mitchell did not, when they were alive, they didn't want to be associated with a feminist movement. But now they're both like um, applauded as like feminists, artists you know what i mean like it's kind of weird it's kind of weird right they didn't want to like put a label on it they just wanted to be accepted in the art world but i think that should honor what they wanted yeah (laughs) so i i'll I'll read this again it's like uh, so she's a fundamental feminist in the art movement um credited with triggering the examination of femininity in art she challenged the vision of what type of art women would be creating with her dark, monumental, masculine, and totem-like artworks. She believed that art reflected the individual, not masculine, feminine labels, and chose to take on her role as an artist, not specifically a female artist. So both her and Mitchell were interested in making art that doesn't... Like, it makes me think that before them, there was an art form that looked like female art, and then they were trying to break that mold is what that makes me think of, right? That- yeah, so I'll read you this, which I found really interesting because so in the 40s is basically when some, I'll just read what, Yeah. The, so the reviews of Nevelson's work in the 1940s wrote her off as just a woman artist. A reviewer of her 1941 exhibit in Nierendorf Gallery stated, we learned the artist is a woman in time to check her enthusiasm. Had it been otherwise, we might have hailed these sculptural expressions by surely a great figure among moderns. <laughs> okay. And so another review was similar in its sexism, and it states, Nevelson is a sculptor. She comes from Portland, Maine. You'll deny both these facts, and you might even insist Nevelson is a man when you see her portraits and paint showing this month at the Nierendorf Gallery. <laughs> 
Yeah, that was another review. Uh, you know, and you'd like to think that this was stuff that happened only in the 40s. But I've heard, I'm not going to name names, but I've heard that this has happened recently here in Portland. You know, like <laughs> someone, a curator being surprised. Oh, you're, oh wait, you're, you're a woman? Oh, okay, well. Both of those quotes were basically saying like, oh, her, her art is great. But, you know, we thought she was a man. And then now we're not so sure about how great her art is like <laughs> yeah so you thought it was great when she was a man now you're just like oh and she's a woman oh my goodness <laughs> um so even with influence upon future generations of feminist artists nevelson's opinion of discrimination within the art world bordered on the belief that artists who were not gaining success based on gender suffered from lack of confidence when asked by a feminist art journal if she suffered from sexism within the art world, she replied, I am a woman's liberation. Hmm. So. so she'd like to answer questions with statements that yeah. <laughs> were really interesting <laughs> statements. Yeah, she just kind of never really addressed it, but never really like denied it either. Yeah, she so. didn't want to carry the flag. Yeah. Like she, she, she knew it was there and she saw it happening, but she just, she just wanted to do her art, you know? Um, but so that was her. And I encourage you guys to kind of look on YouTube of some interviews of her because she's just really like a strong woman. Mm -hmm. She's very interesting to, to look at and very interesting, like what she has to say. Cool. Yeah. I, I liked all the parallels between our artists. I like both these artists, but I, I never realized they had so much in common, you know. Mm -hmm. um, the more we do this, the more I'm like, like your lady last week, I'm like, whoa, they kind of like knew each other. And like, you kind of yeah. get to see what artists knew, what artists and what are, how certain artists influenced them. Mm -hmm. So like Pablo Picasso was her influence for mm -hmm. like a lot of her cubism type yeah. feel. Well, and with uh, Joan Mitchell, um, I mean, yeah, she wove a lot of great influences into her work too. I mean, you could when you look at her work, you could definitely see the influence of like Monet and Matisse and Van Gogh. I mean, her work is luscious and beautiful and poet poetic. And then you start to think about these other things that she's weaving into it. You know, references to art history. She did paintings of her dogs, <laughs> did paintings of places and people, and um, you know, poems. She. Oh, and she she knew Frank O'Hara too, and so she kind of used kind of wo wove his work into into her work as well, and 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 like Louise Nevelson, like referencing Picasso and and using Cubism in her own way, and it seems it feels really contemporary, right? Like taking in these lots of different yeah, her art was very contemporary and, and like very found pieces like recycled pieces so that was kind of a new thing too like she used found objects and i didn't get a chance to look up hoffman very much i don't know hmm. well, yeah, like, maybe we'll have to talk about him in yeah the episode i'm curious about his style because she studied under him a lot so mm -hmm. and he kind of pushed her to like stick to a few limited stick to one color mm -hmm. making it more challenging to yeah to make your art but also I feel like her her work and also your girl's work would really stand the test of time as a modern piece of work. Yeah. So for like homework, I think it came out when we were both talking for Nevelson is if anyone could answer whether or not 
she did have a fire and like if that tied in to yeah so if someone could maybe answer... I have to give him another artist but yeah it sounds like she's she salvaged a lot of stuff so maybe that's what i was thinking of she just happened across you know fires or other destruction in the city and salvaged maybe you know, yeah. molding or or other pieces of wood yeah and it. it did state that she would just walk around new york collecting things so <laughs> i mean i see people like that in portland all the time and and Maybe they're off to like make some amazing artwork with it, you know, just like salvaging you stuff. You never know. You never know. Um, and then as I was thinking about homework or whatever you want to call it, extra credit. Well, to Joan, Joan Mitchell, it was really hard. I mean, I was thinking like, you know, the poetics of color and mark making. She was extremely experimental too with how she applied paint. She used her fingers. She used different sized brushes. She used like string. Um, she poured paint. She did. She did it all. Like that's kind of what makes makes her work really exciting. So I guess my extra credit for you guys would be to um, just experiment with something. You know, if it's just experiment, think about that. Um, and then I also just quickly wanted to read like something I found online that um, how to be an artist by jo Joan Mitchell. So um, there are four things that keep in mind. Um, first, let feeling be your guide. So, you know, if something strikes you, then maybe that should be turned into a piece of art. Um, secondly, when you're stuck, look to nature. So she spent a lot of time outside. Um, she, would, she would think about the lighting and the colors and how they were in, impacting her. Um, third, frame the experience that, that moves you kind of already talked about a, a little bit and then finally lose yourself in the process so let the painting help you make the decisions right like once you start going with the painting once you start making a piece of artwork i know you're working on paper cutouts right like at some point you got to just let the piece tell you what it needs it needs next right yeah. so i guess yeah what is my homework uh just experiment yeah, and I've been doing that a lot with paper cutting. Like, I sit down and I don't have a plan. I just kind of mm -hmm. do what comes to me and what I make shapes and see what fits with that shape and mm -hmm. go from there. Um, so my homework kind of ties into yours in that last week I went to a place in Portland called Scrap. Mm -hmm. Super great place because you go in there and they have anything and everything, like, they have a whole box of raccoon fur. Did yeah. you see that? Just like so just weird. ridiculous stuff. <laughs> like there was like little hammocks for bananas there. Oh, nice. <laughs> nice. They have a box of slides too. Did you see yeah, that? Yeah, I saw the box of slides. I saw just caps of milk jugs. Uh-huh. It's like if you bought like a whole box of those, you could do like a cool, you know, found art piece. Mm -hmm. So like to add to, you know, being creative, I would encourage to go to that place and just... Like, oh I went there because yeah. I needed to make some awards for Derby. Mm -hmm. And they even have, like, old trophies, like bowling trophies, that you could kind of take apart and make your own awards. And yeah. So you could really – I went in there without any idea of what I was going to do, and I left with, like, ideas of what I wanted to do. So that's a good place to, like, go and kind of just be inspired. Yeah. I mean, you could piece together something in a relief fashion, kind of like Nevelson, and see what happens, right? Yeah. So um, I might – I might do something like that. That'd be cool. Okay. I go to scrap a lot for for stuff for Oliver. My, oh, it's great for yeah. little kids. Yeah. I mean, a three-year-old, that's like, yeah, just 
buy a bunch of marbles, glue them to something. Yeah. yeah. And then I also go there to get, um, they, they also have stretcher bars a lot of times, really big, odd size stretcher bars. So for my paintings, oh, oh, oh yeah, you piece yeah. them okay. together and then stretch canvas over them. Gotcha. Yeah. 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 So I go there a lot. It's a fun place. <laughs> Hashtag art gap. <laughs> Hashtag. Um, but that was my homework. But also, like, um, I also went to my local bookstore in Salem uh-huh. and just went to the art, the book section of artists. And I also would encourage people to go do that because you kind of just, you know, looking around the bookshelf, you you come across the artists that you like that you may not have ever have heard of. And I know it's kind of an old school way of doing things, but. Even at Pals, you go to the top floor, the silver section of Pals, and you just like their art books on art are amazing and and a great way to discover artists you never heard of. So. Yeah. yeah, totally, totally. Anyway, but, yeah. Hashtag art gap. That's, That's not even what I meant to say. <laughs> I meant to say promo code. Because, you know, oh. because Scrap's going to start paying us for this. Yeah. Yeah. They should pay us in, in like art supplies for and then we'll advertise for them. That'd be great. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. um so yeah, uh cool. do you know who you're gonna talk about next week? No, I don't, do you? I don't. Well okay. I do, I'll but be I'm surprised. not gonna say. Yeah. Awesome. We'll say when this is turned off. I have an idea too, actually. Okay. Cool. All right, thank you guys. Have thank a good you. week. Bye. Bye. Uh,